I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox. This episode is another in the series of conversations with publishers which aims to find out more about the people behind the publishing decisions. In it, I talk to Dean Smith, who's been director of Duke University Press for almost a year and a half, and before that was director of Cornell University Press. Earlier in his career, Dean held posts at Chapman and Hall as director of electronic publishing and the American Chemical Society as vice president of sales and marketing. Earlier still, he was director of Project Muse at the Johns Hopkins University Press. So a wealth of experience in the university press world. When his departure from Cornell University Press was announced, I read on their blog, Dean leaves us at CUP with an emboldened mentality. He's given us the spirit and desire to fly ever higher, to dream ever bigger and to achieve ever more. So when I spoke to him during his convalescence after hip surgery, I wanted to know more about how Dean saw the role of university press director. I also wanted to find out a bit more about his hinterland. Dean was born and raised in Baltimore. That city is still clearly close to his heart, as are its sports. He wrote about the Baltimore Ravens 2013 against the odds Super Bowl triumph in Never Easy. Never pretty, a fan, a city, a championship season. Dean's also a published poet, and we also spoke about his debut collection, American Boy, which draws on his 1960s Baltimore childhood. In this interview, you'll also hear what Dean thinks are the lessons of the recent Jessica Krug affair, as that author was published by Duke, and why he compares his press to a spaceship in the desert. But something lighter to begin. If you type Dean Smith, John Cleese into a search engine, you'll find video from 2017 of an event at which Dean interviewed the veteran English comedian on stage. I'll let Dean take up the story. We had a folk music concert at Sage House, where the press is located, for one of our authors, so we packed about 60 or 70 people in the foyer of this Victorian mansion. And after it was over, uh, there were a couple of people wanting a full tour of the building. And one of the women 
in the group at the end of the tour said, John Cleese would really love this place. I thought there was like a Professor Cleese at Cornell that I didn't know about or, and in fact, there was, there was a, a visiting professor. And as a, a Monty Python fan, I was like really intrigued. So I followed up with her to just say, I learned about what he had done. You know, most of the work had been done up through 2007, let's say, or 2008. So most of the lectures and he had taken a hiatus from coming, but this, I, you know, the woman's name was Jerry Jones. She unfortunately passed away just before the book came out. And I tell you, like preparing for the interview, which Jerry's idea was to have the interview be the last chapter. She called me and said, you will be interviewing Cleese at Alice Bailey Hall on September 11th, 2017. And I'm sitting there on the phone saying, no, no way the provost is going to allow this. You know, no, but they're going to be calling me saying, thanks, Dean, for jumping in and making this happen. But somebody else is going to do this because there have to be in line, you know, 20, 25 scholars that, that would want to do this. And so I was just like, okay, Jerry, but I started preparing anyway, reading all of his books, reading uh, the interviews, trying to get, watching all of the faulty towers, which I thought was a really interesting insight into his life. I have to say like, he's as engaging in person when you're meeting with him as like someone in your family. Like he wants to know everything about your life. He wants to get a sense of what's going on. And, you know, we, we had a two productive one hour sessions to kind of get to, this is what we're going to do. In the midst of all of that, there was one moment where I just sort of blurted out. He was like, how are we going to start? And I said, there's a dead bishop on the landing. And he'd forgotten about that line and just cracked up. And so I was like figuring out, yeah, he's, his sense of humor, he's like getting a sense of where he was going to go, what he was going to say. It was I would say one of the most challenging assignments that I've ever had. And then I realized why the other folks didn't want to interview him because or sit there with him on stage because, you know, there's a long way to fall if something goes wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Well, I thought you did very well. I was watching the video yesterday. I thought you, you did very well. I think I held serve. Yeah, a... I would say like... A... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I've only interviewed a comedian on stage once in my career. And I was quite nervous before it because I knew that everybody had obviously come to see him. And I knew that part of comedy is being unpredictable and anarchic and surprising, isn't it? And I knew my role was kind of a straight man, but to kind of keep the whole thing on the road, but, you know, not, not tramp on his toes, not spoil, you know, what he wanted to do. And I imagine, I wondered, I wondered if you felt trepidation, even though you'd had those two preliminary conversations, did you feel you were kind of stepping into the unknown when you went on that stage? Uh, absolutely. But one second, you know, I, I, right before we were walking out there, he said, you'll, you'll find you'll have a difficult time shutting me up. And he was right. The nerves kind of went away at that point. You could see the first 15 minutes, I'm just sort of, I kind of almost can't believe I'm there, you know, because it's like after watching, you just have to sneak downstairs in your house to you know, my house to watch those Monty Pythons. And that was a sort of humor that wasn't found anywhere else. And you could share it with your friends in high school or whatever. But it was one of those things where we, we had an, an event at our at the Sage House to really engage the community. And that's what came out of it. And so, like, I'm a big fan of trying to have the university press resonate with the community. That was a big a big thing. So we did some really exciting kind of strange nonlinear events that you wouldn't necessarily think a, a state university press publisher would be doing. You know, we did a book about Cornell hockey. We did a book about the, the Grateful Dead show that was there and had to, like this sort of a, another strange sequence of events where the person running the state theater in Ithaca is a huge Grateful Dead fan and the anniversary, he planned this big event. So we were able to 
You know, at the certain at the end of the day, you want some books that will sell to be able to break even. That's what I thought about those books. If I could bring in or think about a couple of things that we could do that might help our bottom line, we still have to publish all of the the mission based monographs, but. You don't know what kind of discussions are happening about a university press. There's a lot of, especially on campus, there's a lot of different misconceptions. So you want to, you want somebody to be like, yeah, that, that was the university press. We have a great university press. Yeah. So, Would you go as far as to say it's part of the remit of a university press to keep asking, you know, what the remit is, to keep challenging itself, to keep thinking about what is a legitimate expansion and even taking risks with what a university press might credibly achieve and do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially at this moment where I see it as a moment of opportunity. You know, what are the things that we can publish? What are the things that we can do to engage, to energize new audiences? You know, that that's a, a big, you know, a big thing of mine is that, you know, I want as many, when I have to explain to somebody what a university press is, which is a lot, because people say, what do you do? And I, you know, university has a publishing arm, we publish books and journals. So they think it's the media or they think it's something along the lines of you're making Xeroxing business cards or it's the printing service. <laughs> you guys are the printing service. And, yes. But no, I think absolutely, you know, I've been fortunate in my career to be in positions where there was change, you know, whether it was Chapman and Hall, the first publisher of Dickens, you know, electronic, the first SGML was created for the Journal of Material Science. How do we put journals online? And then bringing the American Chemical Society journals, networking them around the world with a team of folks, and then uh, going to Project Muse, facing an existential threat from JSTOR, becoming publishing also current uh, journal content. Those were all really exciting and great opportunities for me. But coming, I've been studying since 2007 what was going on with university presses. And I sort of thought, like, this is the next place where you could really have fun. Because there's no reason that a university press can't be like the English department, a laboratory of innovation. You know, and I bring this up with administrators. Like, there's no difference we happen to pay our own way. We've been exiled off to, you know, the markets and Amazon, but we still have to pay our own way. And why don't you think about us as an asset in terms of modalities of communication, of scholarly communication, all, all the different opportunities that are out there. It's a, a continuum of challenges is really, and I'm blessed, really fortunate to be with Duke University Press because it's really hard when you're thinking about a group of books and trying to break even on a group of books. But when you have technology, journals, a fantastic staff, an incredible multidisciplinary book list, solid journals. You, you've got a number of things that you can look at and say, hey, let's take all of this to the next level, potentially. Well, I'll definitely want to come back to, to many of those themes you, you've touched on, Dean, and your career, you know, just looking at your CV, you've, you've done such a, a range of interesting things. We, we will try and cover as many of them as we can in the next half hour. But I wanted to take you or to ask you to go all the way back, because as well as looking at you on the screen at the moment, I'm also looking at the cover of American Boy, the sure. collection of poetry that you published. And I wanted you to tell me about that photograph a little bit and maybe sort of as a way of introducing you and your, and your background and thinking a bit about, you know, what makes you tick. So that, that's Easter Sunday, 1966 in Baltimore. And those are actually my grandparents, both of whom are of Italian descent. American Boy, I, I, so I ended up working at university presses because of getting an um, MFA in poetry at Columbia in 1989. So I was working at Columbia University Press. And it literally took me 11, 12 years to get that manuscript published. Those are autobiographical poems, poems about my life growing up in Baltimore, which is also a place that's 
near and dear to my heart. I also wanted to make that book available for free on Internet Archive because in January of 2019, I lost my mom and uh, she was a, a family law attorney. She probably bought more copies of that book than anybody. So she would give them to um, her clients that were facing custody battles with children because there's a lot, a lot in there. Just fascinated with history always. Was an English major at the University of Virginia. Got a chance to study with Gregory Orr and Charles Wright who were fantastic poets, and then at Columbia, Paul Muldoon and others. So I was, I like to write. I like being a writer. I think poetry is good for me because I like to, I like to have some sense of accomplishment at the end of a draft <laughs> because, yeah. because a novel will take too long. I've written a couple, but haven't published them. And they're, most of them are, are narrative poems about my life. I try to f- tell stories that are interesting to me from uh, what Stanley Kunitz would call psych- a psychic energy kind of uh approach. I didn't want to be in the kind of publishing that was trade publishing or fiction publishing. I wanted to have that separate. And maybe that was a mistake. I don't know. But I think that the publishing journey is, is you know, it's not easy to find time to, to write poems and fortunate to have another book coming out. It only took seven, it took 17 years for this book. And it's called Baltimore Suns. So it's a similar theme, but it centers around basically my father in the early 2000s, having a gun in the, a loaded gun in his house. So that, and it kind of goes from there. Being in Ithaca, I was able to write a lot of poetry because the winter's along. So it's a six, seven month time where, you know, if you want to read and write, it's a perfect place to do it. Is there a fork in the road somewhere in your past where you might have been an English professor and doing poetry readings? You know, I come from a lower middle class background in Baltimore. I I ended up, you know, in, in a lot of good schools and a lot of good places, but I was always conscious of trying to have to pay back loans and trying to get a, a you know job in I'm not sure in my 20s or 30s I could have pulled that off, but I have been thinking recently about if anyone will have me. I'm teaching at GW a publishing course, but at a certain point, if if that's a possibility down the road, I'd, I that's probably where my home, my, my natural home would be. So you're teaching graduate students at GW who are on a publishing course. So Yeah, they're getting a master's degree in publishing. It's an introduction to book and journal publishing, and it's really hard to teach publishing because you actually, as you know, you have to have the experience. It's an experiential profession. So I try to keep it like, okay, this is a publishing house. We're going to do this this week. Have your hand at mainly to just develop their confidence in sharing ideas and in communicating. You know, unless you want to be a manuscript editor, which is perfectly fine. You know, if you want to be in the profession or have a, have a wide range of, of viewpoint of the profession, it's good to be able to present and to write and to communicate. I worked for someone earlier in my career who used to say publishing is a trade, it's not a profession, because there is no body of professional knowledge that can be passed on from generation to generation. And, and he, was, he was partly being provocative, I think. But I guess what, what has changed even more rapidly since the, since the time he said that is the speed of change and evolution. And, you know, if you'd been teaching publishing 20 years ago, the body of knowledge would have been very different, wouldn't it? The questions that you'd have been asking students to think about would have been very different. So you, I guess teaching it ensures that you remain on your toes even more than you already would have to doing your day job. It's a good time to be teaching it. I started in 2012 and I actually told the uh, in the first week of the course this year, I said, you're going to have fun this semester because there's a lot happening. And I think COVID has really created a lot of disruption, but also a lot of opportunity for different kinds of publishing and I remember when borders closed, too. It was, that was the moment where you were able to talk to the class, okay, here's how this affected exactly 
one publisher and being able to take them through that. But there's all kinds of the big five negotiating with Apple. There's no shortage of headlines. And then you love to see things where you have moments that are, you know, this Bob Woodward book, you have moments where publishing is in the midst of this. And the question of why didn't you share that information before your publication date? The the fact that publishing is still at the heart of, and, and the inability maybe to get copies into people's hands because of the printing, the consolidation of the printing industry. So there's all different kind of interesting things to have the class engage with uh, in this moment. And I imagine Jessica Krug is going to be, I mean, talking about things that were not revealed before publication, Duke University Press published Jessica Krug's book, and that's a very hotly debated issue at the moment. What questions do you think it raises beyond the, the circumstances of the individual and the individual, you know, story? I think you have a a real opportunity, and I'll talk about our response and how we responded, um, but you have a real opportunity to engage uh, people on identity and authorship. I mean, I think you really have an opportunity here to to kind of really get at what that is in a big picture discussion, academic discussion. She was teaching a professor at GW, but so I did, um, I brought this up with my students and uh, it was an interesting, uh, really interesting exchange, and they're they're studying it in their ethics class as well. But you know, you so you watched GW's response. You know, we could have easily done something like that. Duke traditionally doesn't respond. Was you know, not encouraging us to to respond. But uh, there's the merits of the scholarship. So that's the, some of the things. That, one of the things that we're focusing on that first weekend, my editorial director, Hisela Fasado, and I read the entire manuscript. And we found two instances of the author embodying the, the false identity, once at the beginning and once at the end. And so we've placed an errata note in the book explaining that for now. But the discussion is ongoing. The situation is fluid. And we want to continue reviewing that. You know, the book was reviewed by scholarly journals. It was nominated for a prize. The scholarship at this point seems to hold up. and it, But we're still open to having this dialogue. We, of course, we're saddened. And, and in a way, because our press is ba- based heavily on equity and inclusion and has a has its own sort of body of folks engaged on, on that and those issues every month in a meeting, of, you know, there was sadness in the, on the part of the staff. Like this is deeply, deeply painful for our staff to be in this situation. And we, you know, it's good to review your peer review policies. It's good to review, review the peer review trail of this book, to go in and look at what the reviewers said about it. And so we're doing an exhaustive uh, inventory of all of these things and engaging our editorial advisory board and also my boss, who is uh, in, at the highest level of the Duke administration. So we're making sure that everybody is involved, as many people is involved, uh, as many voices as we can have in this discussion. You know, it's heartening to see people uh, really engage about this on on social media. and But my main concern, and I'll just be candid, was that I was concerned that the individual had been weaponizing her identity. You know, that was really, for me, something that I, I lost sleep over. That was just uh, something that was painful to me. And, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that that was addressed in the discussions we were having. Which raises questions that go beyond the the limited parameters of the book, doesn't it? I mean, I saw I saw you published a, a journal called Qui Parle, who, who Speaks, and I thought that is a really important question, I think, particularly in the, in the areas of scholarship in which Duke is active. Who is speaking 
in what voice, on behalf of whom, with what legitimacy, how is that legitimacy potentially contested and by whom. I think it raises, you know, beyond the, the, the local circumstances of this one book, it raises all sorts of interesting philosophical and ethical questions about the very subjects in which Duke is, is most active. Uh, absolutely. You know, your own identity as a publisher, you, you have to go back and check that too. You know, hey, what are we doing? You know, what are we looking at? And you know, we've always been very good at a, a multidisciplinary approach that publishes bold books. I mean, we look for bold, multidisciplinary, and we do that very, what we do, we do very well. That's something we certainly don't want to change. And we don't want our integrity in this effort to be called into question. So that, you know, we, we, we it's a good check for us to, to, but I think we can convene some discussions along those lines that you were pointing to. I think, I think that would be a, a really healthy way to exchange to really, to really get at those issues because I think it is, there is a bit of a gray area there. But do you think peer review might, your peer review policy might change, be nuanced differently as a result of this, or is it maybe too early to say? I think it's too early to say, but one of the things I've been most impressed by is that everything is peer reviewed here. We just published, or we'll be publishing a book this fall that's gone, undergone 12 years of peer review. So, right. <laughs> so and that, and when I was, I was presented uh, with sort of a review of the press when I uh, started, and one of the things was that the, the peer review process is so exhaustive that it takes a long time to, to get. Sometimes that turns authors off. You know, it's 12 months, most likely from the end of the peer review. So or more. But, you know, that's some of the thing is like it's slow, slow and steady or can be if it's not right. It has to go back. And, you know, and, and I think the editors are quite good at determining that. So um, you know, a piece of scholarship that we publish has been for the most part, heavily, heavily scrutinized. Dean, you've been at Duke for just over a year, and it's it's obviously been an unusual year because half, of, nearly half of it, people have been working from home. But can you tell me a little bit about your perceptions of Duke before you came to the press, and then how they might have evolved or, or deepened or shifted since you arrived last July? So from the outside, when I was at uh, Project Muse, you know, Duke was uh, one of the first university presses on the journal side to have its own electronic presence and have its own sales force and, and licensing team. But when you looked at the data, you know, in terms of usage and the quality of the publications, and, and at one point they decided because the transition was print was being canceled very quick, you know, faster than you could recognize the electronic revenue. So they pulled some of their current titles off. This was in 06, 07. But from my perspective, even the, the journals that weren't having added, any new content added were generating tremendous usage. And so that, from my perspective, I was like, that's innovation to like have your own electronic platform and working with the folks, the staff there who I knew for 10 years. And, and also Steve Cohn thinking, He's got a, a great vision for how to how to determine your own future, how to have all of the assets that you need. You know, even on the book side, they they were one of the first publishers to publish a book on Osama bin Laden right after two thousand and one. So, and of course Ken Whisaker, who's the was the editorial director. You know, just hearing him speak at Cornell and realizing that when I was at Cornell, that Ken had already gotten all of the stars out of Cornell. Like they wouldn't have thought of publishing with Cornell because. 
they were publishing with Duke and, and hearing his philosophy on how to help authors foreground their, you know, their arguments, which is, I think, a really, you know, the generosity of spirit that he has to really cultivate this pipeline that he's cultivated over since 1990s. So, so when I got to the interview process, I came across this uh, blog post on the Duke website, which on the press website, which is about a book called Spaceship in the Desert. So that was the metaphor I used. Like the press is like this spaceship in the desert that has everything it needs to take off, to really take off. And I found that to be true. So we, you know, we have, we have our own technology. We actually have two digital platforms. We, we do Project Euclid, which is a math journal. So, you know, and, and on the journal side, you run the gamut from the Duke Math Journal to the Transgender Quarterly. So you're running a long, there's a, there's a wide range of disciplines that, that you publish in. And I think on the book side, you have, when you look at our social media, I was immediately impressed by the close to 40,000 Twitter followers. So that there are networks that are built, have been built around these books that I didn't, I haven't seen really or experienced at, at other publishers. There's a, there's, there's an expectation from a Duke book about what a Duke book is. You know, when you think about it, what you really want to be is a place where there's must have content. You have technology and you have really a talented leadership team, some of whom have come from Oxford University Press and who really just are a pleasure to work with and are talented. And I really look at my role as like facilitating leadership to be able to do what they've always wanted to do. You know, so there was, here are the opportunities. Is it in publishing services where presses might need our expertise doing journal publishing? Or is it, you know, are there presses that, you know, some presses are, this is going to be a tough time moving forward to see how can we play a leadership role, even in areas like equity and inclusion, which is for me been a tremendous learning experience, which I, you know, I went to the AUP meeting in Detroit just to see a session that Hisela Fasado and Kathy Reimer Searles were giving with one of the Duke authors, Melanie Morrison. It's on the scholarly kitchen and has been videotaped, but that for me in the last year and a half or a year and three, four months has been the biggest learning experience is to, to kind of, in terms of my own self-knowledge and my own growth personally, is to be able to be a part of the solution. I guess I would say it's been a challenging year, but it's been a lot of fun. You want to have something to do when you get up in the morning. I'm really happy to be at this, at this place in this moment in my career. I'm going to borrow your spaceship in the desert metaphor because it's irresistible. I was looking at what they said on the Cornell blog when you left, and they talked about you being an energizer and an optimist and, and an enabler. And I wondered, is that, is that what sort of fires up your imagination and your enthusiasm, this sort of sense of the, the engines are, are thrumming and they're ready? You know, there's all this sort of um, potential. Because the other thing that Cornell seemed to be saying was that you increased their self-confidence in them as a, as a company. It seemed to be a sense of purpose and, and capacity seemed to have been enhanced by the four years that you, you spent there. I mean, is that, is that a description of yourself that you recognise? So I, I will come clean. So my name is Dean Smith, and I'm, that's synonymous with the UNC basketball coach of the same name, a legendary basketball coach. And my father was a college basketball coach and a teacher. So I really kind of view my role along those lines if, you know, you're, if I'm working with you, you're going to have the opportunity to do something that you thought you never want to do or you, you'd never be able to do. You know, I don't like top-down management. I like a cross horizontal. I, I don't believe in that old totem pole caste system. 
the greatest ideas, and I learned that in American Chemical Society, is that the greatest ideas can come from people who know more about digital than somebody who's been thinking about print for 30, 20, 30 years, like me. I, I want to have an open, flexible, participatory discussion about anything we want to do, because you don't, you know, it's, it's about basically kind of allowing folks to grow and to become empowered, even if they make mistakes. I mean, you know, that's, that's the one thing is to be encouraged not to make a lot of mistakes, but, you know, I, I don't think you're going to learn from those things more than anything else. And, trying something different, trying something new. There's no reason why things have to be done the same way that they've always been done. One of the examples I'll give you from Cornell, Andromeda Hall had this idea that she's the managing editor. And it's great when your managing editor has strategic ideas, but she came and said, here are the six different types of books that we publish. You know, you have from the narrowest monograph to the highest performing trade title from a sales perspective, if we're giving everything all of the same resources, does that necessarily make sense? So that starts a discussion. Are we sending 20 award copies for the narrow monograph? Maybe we are, you know? So, and, and, and that, she took that, ran with that. And um, a number of other presses have, have taken that and done that for their press because every press is a different case study and publishes different things. And here at Duke, there's, a, you know, a number of those kinds of things going on in terms of, you know, just in digital workflows for things like contracts or workflows run publishing companies and you never want to try to change one. But I was, yeah. I would call myself like breaker of workflows. It's like, that's my uh, right. Native American name, you know? So, uh, <laughs> so what about, what do you think about disruptor? What do you think about the concept of disruptor? Is that one you own or is that one you're, you're wary of? I'm wary of because I cause a lot of confusion and chaos. I mean, that's the problem. And that I felt like at Cornell, you know, these folks had, had worked so hard. We had to outsource our warehouse. And so we outsourced the warehouse, built a new title database, moved every, all the digital assets over to CoreSource in like the space of three or four months. And I think people were just totally um, fatigued by that. So you have to, you know, I think... I've held back on a couple of things. You know, you learn in every place you go. And what what I'm most likely to think about are the things that I don't want to do the same. You know, like what are the different things that I, and, and I'm, hes I'm really concerned with or aware of the stress that I can put on staff from time to time. You know, we had to move 2,000, 2,400 titles into POD to be able to sell books during COVID. And that was done in the space of about 10 days or 12 days. You know, there were moments where I had to pull back because I knew everybody was doing the absolute working around the clock to make this happen. And, I, you know, but I don't want to be necessarily disruptor. If I can, if I can enable you to think about something differently and then come back to me to say, hey, I thought about that. That's all. That's all I ask for. I don't I shy away from this is how we're going to do it. And sometimes people say you need to make a decision or I can make a decision, but I want to hear everybody's perspective first. You know, I don't want to just jump in and, and you know, this is how it has to be. Because I think things are changing, as you, as you mentioned, in such a way that we have to be adaptive and flexible and, and watch how that, how that works. And, and, and mostly, from my perspective, this has to do with the, the hosted institution. I, I'd love to have a great relationship with the, the Duke administration. You know, when the press has started back in the 1860s, Cornell was 1869, you know, there was a steam cylinder press that published the, the scholars on site. Now, that's not necessarily what we want to do, but 
what, what, how would you open doors and, be, and, and express a kind of um, feeling of openness towards the press, that this is a place for the entire university community, for the Durham community? How can we be a part of that? And we talk about that all the time. I was going to ask you what you think makes a good match between a director and a press. And I guess the other part of it is what makes a good match between a director and a parent institution. So it's not, it's a dynamic relationship in, in different directions, isn't it? It's, it's a complex network of relationships that you're at, at the middle of when we're thinking about the university press. Yeah, and I think it's, well, it's all about relationships. So it's your relationships to your staff, to every person on your staff, and to being interested in every person on your staff, to think about what they're, you know, to, to learn as much about them as I, as you can. So I met with everyone, all 100, 104 out of 120. I, you know, people had the option. If you didn't want to come talk to me, you didn't have to. But it, it was good to be able to think about, to hear about what everybody was doing. And on the uh, university side, you know, there there are feelings about the press. There are things that, you know, that, that, that have been built up over the years about, well, you know, we have a great reputation for being entrepreneurial and for making our numbers. Now, is that everything that we need to be the end all and be all? Because, you know, that's not strategic to me. If that's your only thing that you're being judged on, you know, and so what we developed this newsletter that we goes that goes just to administrators every month to show the coverage. Like, here's where the Duke brand is global now on the press side. Like, so you're you're getting some lift in the New York Times or the Times uh, Higher Education or, you know, all, all, you know, London Review of Books, like, all of the, here's where the coverage is happening. And then here are the books that we're publishing. Here are the things, just so that they're up aware every month of what's the press doing for them in a way. So, and I want that value proposition is really key, especially at this time, because universities are reviewing everything they're doing right now. Yeah, uh, and so I want to be thought of as you could leverage us as an asset. Look at what we publish. Does this help you in this national dialogue right now? You know, that's another question. A book like Necropolitics by Ashil Membe, which talks about governments making decisions on who lives and dies, it, it hit, had a peak in April and May because that was what was being discussed, essentially, when you talk about who has to go to work and who doesn't. So what would you add to that list, as well as making the numbers and being entrepreneurial, not when you're facing the, the faculty at your parent university, but when you're facing the scholarly community, the wider community of readers, what would you like to go on because obviously they're not they're not aware of the sort of internal business aspect. So what what would you like that wider perception of Duke to be? Yeah, for us, I mean it's it's the marginalized voices and the marginalized perspectives. I mean that's that's the empathy that's there in what we publish. Even from the point of view of every author gets a beautiful cover. You know, that's something when you're thinking about profit and loss, though it doesn't you know, that, that people want to talk about. And it's like, no. It's the least we can do for this person that spent six years of their life working on this book. And that's what our books are known for. But trying to be there one-on-one with all of the stakeholders and having, having a direct line of communication, authors, editors, reviewers, contributors, librarians, administrators in the university, to be present and to be open and honest and flexible and transparent and trustworthy in what we do. That's a bigger strategic, to me, a bigger strategic than just Here's here's we're doing our narrative this week for where we're going to, you know, end this year and, and, and this fiscal year next next June. And, you know, I'll sneak some sort of visionary stuff in there just to get them, you know, aware of that. This is more than just 
the ups and downs, the seesaw of a bal- of balancing a budget. So, and now hopefully that your joint pain has has gone and doesn't wake you up in the night. What are the, what are the big picture things that do wake you up in the night? Maybe not specifically about Duke, but the wider landscape. You know, we've talked quite a bit about about change and uncertainty and. And you know, publishing in the era of COVID, what what are the things that you are sort of chewing over in those those wee small hours of the night? How can we be part of a new way of communicating, even from a conference or exhibit point of view? Can we can we as Duke convene a conference on Afro pessimism with maybe scholars from around the country? Can we leveraging our brand in the areas that we publish in? Can we? Can we work with those associations to do something like that or come up with a sort of smaller, you know, way to engage? Because it's really about the next generation of scholars. That's that's for uh, for me. And that's what I think about. Like, how do we make sure that we we're getting the, the new voices and, and those those emerging voices to do what we want to do? Also, new areas of, of thinking about this is an interesting time because a lot of authors are reaching out with different types of publications. And that question of is it right for us? Like. One of those would be, you know, should we do books about basketball just because Duke is known for basketball? And what about a book on social justice in the NBA? Is that something that you could work into a kind of sports series? So I'm thinking about down the road, those types of things. And um, what keeps me up at night, mate, you know, will there be another lockdown in the next six weeks? I mean, that's another thing is you look at the pandemic from uh, 1918. Is that something that that we you know what happens then do we have to deal with that same sort of situation we were in what about supply chain what happens to a number of our suppliers when when will library budgets be unfrozen because many are frozen right now they are not sure what resources they have to acquire scholarly materials the biggest probably thing i'm thinking about right now is this journal that was a springer nature journal demography that basically during covid i thought demography population studies are are really important that's really important content that shouldn't behind be behind a, a paywall and so I, you know there's no way we can com, com, you know compete with the large package of thousands of journals and the revenue that would throw off so i just said well we'll just publish it open from the beginning we should do that look at the coronavirus map at hopkins look at you know this is what this is what we should do it's a big discipline at duke lots of demographers across multiple disciplines. So that's a big risk for us. And, you know, I'm, I'm sort of revving myself up on, on the energy front to kind of get out there and, and talk to librarians and say, hey, this could be a model that might work long term, you know, create a destination OA publisher type thing. And so, but and we have a great librarian at Duke, uh, Deborah Jacobs and, and her staff. And, you know, that's another thing. It's like I'm somebody who wants to work with a library. Uh, I, I think the library is a, a great, always a great partner from a number of perspectives. You know, there's always a large staff in a library. So there's copyright. There's a lot of similar metadata. There's similar functions that track with publishing. And we've done a, a, at least one book together. But what are the opportunities to, to make demography and, and, and this kind of idea of, of open access? Is there something there? And, and again, it's an experiment. It's an innovation to try to make happen. I don't ask people to choose favourite titles, but I do like to invite them to maybe suggest a title which they think says something about their press, which sort of encapsulates something about the spirit. And if they were to, you know, if, if someone who didn't know the press was to say, give me an example of a, a typical Duke title that sort of embodies something about it, whether it's a backlist title or a frontlist title, 
what sort of comes into your mind first off? So the the book I want to talk about is called The Black Shoals, which is by Tiffany Lothabo King. And it's the shoals is like neither land nor sea. And it's a really it, it kind of encapsulates what a Duke book is. It's um in in the shoal space you have this interrogation between black studies and native and indigenous studies. And I've been reading it against the the you know, the avalanche of news, uh, you know, for, that you get. And it's a very meditative book about the conquistadors or the conquest. And that's the white, sort of the white supremacy side of it. But that, I, one of the things I hadn't thought of was the terror of the conquest. And that's, you know, there are pieces of that whole experience, but this is the way it's written as such as you can read 10, 12 pages of it and really feel better. It's soothing to read someone who's real, who's grappling with this, but that's kind of what our books do. Or another one called In the Wake, where the wake symbolizes um, the funeral of, of the African-American, right? But also the, the, the trail of the water from the slave ship. And it encompasses memoir, poetry, different types of forms, and is multidisciplinary. So that's, the Black Shoals is one of those, In the Wake is another. You know, for me, it's it's been an awakening from the, from the kinds of content that are possible. And that's what we're, those are the kinds of books we're, we're really known for. We're not, it's not, you know, straight this or that. It, there's a, there's always a, several elements in play. And that's what's exciting to me. Like I look at our catalog and I'm, I can't wait to see what happens with these books, you know, and, and, you know, can they extend beyond that community? Can they, can they awaken, you know, younger generations of scholars to say, Hey, this is amazing. And, and um, the Black Shoals really was also another one that rose uh, over the last three or four months that, that had a lot of, uh, there was a lot of interaction with it. I was talking to Dean Smith, director of Duke University Press. You can find Dean on Twitter, where he's at NeverEasy921. Do check out the press's latest catalogue on their website. I'll put links to all the titles Dean mentioned in our conversation in the show notes on the website at thehedgehogandthefox.com. That's also where you'll find over 70 more episodes of the programme. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.